Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Robert Kolheb about how to shape a corporate culture upon which excellence is the standard. Bob Kolhep, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. John, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it is a pleasure to be with you. I'm super excited to tap into your years of experience uh, and all the great insights that you uh, bring to bear uh, on a, a range of human capital and leadership types of topics. Today, we're going to focus specifically on how to shape a corporate culture upon which excellence is the standard. I love the idea of, of striving for excellence. I love using culture to help us get there. So we're going to unpack that together and really dive on in. As we get started, I wanted to share Bob's bio with everybody. Bob Kolhep joined Syntest Corporation in July 1967 as a controller over a span of 50 years with Syntest. He was promoted to positions of general manager, vice president and treasurer, executive vice president, president and CEO, and then served as vice chair and board chair until retiring in 2016. Additionally, he has served on several association, corporate, nonprofit and university boards. His new book is Building a Better Organization that you can find at robertkolhep.com. Uh, Robert or Bob, rather, anything else you would like to share by way of your background or personal context for listeners before we dive on into the conversation? Only, John, that uh, I feel very blessed to have spent 50 years with one company. Uh, as you mentioned, I started in 1967. Our sales were about a million six. We had 62 employees and barely made a profit. Uh, today, we do about $8 billion in sales have over 40,000 employees. And uh, it's been a great experience for me to be part of that. Don't mean to suggest I did it all. I've had a lot of great people around me as well. But uh, I learned a lot in those 50 years about things you should do and things you shouldn't do. And it was a wonderful experience. And I wanted to share it with others. That's why I wrote my book. Wonderful. And let me just say that that's a bit of a relic um, working 50 years with one company we don't see that very much anymore. That's super fascinating to me in and of itself. Um, but it, it speaks to a great company, a great organization that created opportunities for you to grow and develop throughout your career. And that's that's wonderful. It's not something we see all that often anymore, but I, I really uh, think that's tremendous and probably lays the groundwork for a lot of the, the culture components and the excellence that you talk about in your book. It, it certainly does. And I was blessed to be able to do it. I had a great uh, the founder of the company was my mentor. I learned a great deal from him. Uh, as you said, I was in a business where it was growing and opportunities. So why leave? Good company, good people, well-managed, no reason to leave. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So let's, let's dive on in and talk more about the book uh, and talk more about 
you know, really how we go about creating this culture of, of excellence uh, and really a standard of excellence for people throughout our organization. Well, John, I think the first thing I would say about that is that every organization has a culture. Uh, you could think about the family you grew up in, the high school you attended, the college you attended, there was a culture there. Uh, things that your, your mom and dad felt strongly about, things that they would allow you to do, things they would not allow you to do and so forth, and what their expectations of you were as a, as a child and as you grew up. Uh, every business has a culture as well. The problem that I see is that far too many of those companies and organizations and nonprofits, as a matter of fact, as well, uh, don't take the time to define what their culture is and or what they want it to be. And therefore, the culture changes over time every time a new CEO or top management uh, turnover occurs. And we strove to have the culture of CentOS, not the culture of our founder, not my culture, not the person who succeeded me as CEO. And uh, we very carefully defined that. And it was made up of three things. First of all, our principal objective, uh, which was to exceed our customers' expectations in order to maximize the long-term value uh, for our shareholders and for our working partners, who we who were employees, we called them partners. Uh, and that one sentence drove every decision we made. And anytime we were struggling with the decisions to what we what, what should we do? Should we buy a company? Should we hire someone? Should we go into a new market, a new business? It always came down to which decision will exceed our customers' expectations and maximize the long-term value for our, our shareholders and for our employees. Uh, the second part of our culture was our corporate character, we called it, adjectives and phrases that describe how we wanted to go about doing our jobs how we felt about our customers, how we felt about our employees, uh, honesty and integrity, uh, uh, professionalism, a whole bunch of adjectives and phrases to describe the way we operated and wanted to operate. And then the last part was our, our management system where we defined policies and procedures on recurring problems and issues. And that's the way we ran the company. And we wrote books about it. We taught courses about it. Uh, we lived it every day, which is the hard thing. So many times you see companies have wonderful statements in their annual reports, uh, but they don't live them every day. In fact, if you go back and read Enron's annual report before they imploded, uh, it, would, it, would, it would have sounded very wonderful to you. The problem is they just didn't do it. And so every organization has a culture. And I think it's incumbent upon top management to find that culture, to teach that culture, to live that culture, and part of our culture was excellence in everything we do. We wanted to look professional, act professional. We wanted to achieve exceptional results. Uh, we had high standards for our people, high expectations for ourselves and for our people. And that was part of our culture that we established. And I think when you do that, you tend to attract people that are attracted to that. And you tend not to attract people who aren't attracted to it. Doesn't mean we're better or worse. We just weren't compatible. And I think if you create that expectation that we're going to achieve excellence, we're going to strive for excellence, you probably never really achieve excellence, but you're always reaching for it and trying to improve. Nothing you do is as good as it can be. And we call that positive discontent. Everything we do has to constantly get better uh, because we have these people called competitors that are trying to copy everything we do and trying to catch us. And if you aren't keep continuing to get better, they will catch you and maybe pass you. 
So I think that whole concept of excellence and achieving excellence was an integral part of our culture. And it was sort of the way we ran the company. And I think that's why it permeated the entire organization. Yeah, man, so much you said there to unpack. Um, you talked about the, the core components to creating the culture, which I think is excellent. And, and you also talked about really just the day-to-day, -day, the sustainability of a given culture. The bottom line is we have to be able to, to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. So pretty much any organization of any size has a really nice mission statement, a really nice value statement, vision statement. Uh, they put that on their website. They may even talk about it some in, in uh, recruitment materials and onboarding and, and some of those sorts of things. But the, the real question uh, where it comes into play is, what do your people observe you as a leader doing day in and day out? And are you acting in consistent ways with the desired aspirational culture? And if you are, then it will um, get more deeply ingrained and embedded throughout the organization, throughout the various layers and all the different teams. If you don't, people will recognize it as um, just this nice PR spin and and uh, nice words, but don't, don't actually have any meaning. And they're ultimately gonna follow along with what they see uh, their leaders doing. So you gave the Enron example. Uh, it's a tremendous example. And people always talk about Enron and the accounting and the cooking the books. But what often doesn't get talked about is that Enron had a super sick culture uh, in a variety of ways. Uh, they were super sexist. Uh, they were hyper competitive to the point where people inside of Enron were undermining each other uh, in unproductive ways. It was a, a very sick, unhealthy, psychologically unsafe culture um, beyond just the unethical um, cooking of the books components that ultimately led to its downfall. And so, you know, you mentioned every organization has a culture. You're absolutely right. And every organization has to make the decision. Are they going to just allow a, court, a culture to organically emerge that may not actually align with their strategy and what they want to have happen in the organization? Or are they going to be proactive about it and really try to drive the type of culture that they want through the policies, practices, and procedures of the organization, through how leaders model behavior for their people, uh, and all of the consistency, you know, what needs to be consistencies over time in order to really have a, a strong culture take hold. If we don't do that, there will be a culture emerge and it will often be unhealthy. It will often be psychologically unsafe and ultimately people get exploited and used and chewed up and spit out in that kind of an environment. And that's not what we want in a successful organization. I couldn't agree more. And I think the only thing I would add to that is that uh, how does management react when something happens or someone does something that is out of sync with the culture? Do you just walk by it uh, or, or do, you, do you confront it and deal with it and explain to someone why that behavior isn't what we're all about? It isn't what we believe in. It isn't the way we operate. And, uh, and so uh, that, that happened frequently in our company when someone would do something without, out of sync with our culture. When we would make an acquisition, we would, if it was any size, we would bring the entire management team of the acquired company into our corporate office and we would teach them our corporate culture, what it was about, what it meant, example after example of how it manifested itself. And then I would say to everyone in the room, I'd say, now look, we understand that you can't just flip a switch and in one day or one week or two weeks, 
be totally compatible with our value system and our culture. It's gonna take time. It's gonna take explanation from your immediate superior. Uh, it's gonna take you watching and seeing how we function, and how we operate. But then I would say to them, but after about six months or nine months, you need to make a decision. Get on the bus or get off the bus. We run this company the way we say we're running this company. And if you can't function in this company in consistent with that value system, then you're gonna, we're not gonna be happy with you. You're not gonna be happy with us and you should get off the bus. Uh, and so, and the other thing too is that culture has to be enduring. Uh, a good example of that is if you think about what Lee Iacocca did at Chrysler many years ago, came into Chrysler, it was, it was floundering. He completely turned our company around to fire just about every executive in the company, brought in a whole new management team, took Chrysler's products and completely re-engineered the way they create new products. And he took Chrysler from an, an average at best company to an outstanding company. If you remember his ad, he used to say, if you can find a better car, buy it because he was so confident that his cars were the best cars out there. But what happened when Lee Iacocca left? The company went right back to where it was before. Why? Because it was Lee Iacocca's culture. It wasn't Chrysler's culture. And that's something we work very, very hard to do. Our founder's name was Dick Farmer. It wasn't his culture. I succeeded him as CEO. It wasn't my culture or the person who succeeded me as CEO. It's Sintas's culture. And even though I've retired, in 2016, been gone for over five years. They still operate exactly the same way they did when I was there because it became our culture, Sintas's culture, and we eradicate people who are out, out of sync with it. I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, Bluer Than Indigo Leadership the journey of becoming a truly remarkable leader. Early in my adult life, I learned about an Asian proverb that translates as bluer than indigo. If you think about the color indigo, it is a brilliant, deep, and vibrant blue. What some would call the bluest of blues. To have something that is bluer than indigo is rare and truly remarkable. Contrary to popular myth, there is no one-size-fits-all or cookie-cutter approach to effective leadership. There's no silver bullet, no secret sauce, no go-to model that will solve all of our problems. The truth is, great leaders have all had their unique strengths and flaws, and have all had to discover and then pave their own distinctive path in their life's journey to fulfill their leadership potential. Bluer Than Indigo Leadership will help you discover your own path and explore those ordinary, everyday actions that will help you respond to an uncertain future and produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations. Yeah, so over time, some of it's self-selection, self-selection in and out, but also through coaching, mentoring, performance management processes, all those sorts of things, you end up better aligning the human capital and the, the, the people uh, within the team, uh, you know, with the culture that you want. And either they choose to self-select out or they kind of get removed uh, and given opportunities to go, you know, somewhere else that might better fit and align with what they're trying to accomplish in their career. Um, that That is one of the hallmarks of a really great culture is that it's thoroughly embedded 
like that um, so that you can over time have that kind of an alignment. Something else you mentioned just a few minutes ago, um, the reality that this doesn't happen overnight. This really is a long-term proposition. And that sometimes is kind of, you know, this kind of long-term perspective and mentality sometimes is a bit of a dirty phrase or dirty word in corporate culture because we're so focused on quarterly earnings reports. We're so focused on immediate, you know, stock uh, price, um, stocks, uh, prices and earnings and those sorts of things that we can fall into the trap of just being super short-term oriented. Uh, we need to take a long-term approach, which will also produce good outcomes. There's lots of research on this that, you know, uh, taking the long-term approach will help you have better engaged, uh, more productive employees when you have that healthy kind of a culture, but it's not going to change overnight. You can't flip the switch. This is something you're going to have to be committed to over an extended period of time. And with the Chrysler example, like you said, versus the Sintas example, um, you have to find ways to embed it and institutionalize the culture so that it doesn't just go away once you have uh, an executive change. Yep, absolutely. And one other thing I would add to what you just said is that when we hired people, we were extremely meticulous in our hiring process. We spent half the time in an interview determining, is this person capable of doing the job we're about to hire them for? We spent the other half of the time determining, is this person compatible with our values, our culture, and the way we run this company? Because if they aren't, we're not going to be happy with them. They're not going to be happy with us. And we did that by asking a lot of behavioral questions. Questions like, what's the hardest decision you ever made in your life? Tell me about it. How did it turn out? Who's the best boss you ever had? Why? Who's the worst boss you ever had? Why? Uh, and so we'd ask all these behavioral questions to determine when confronted with a certain situation, how would this person react? Uh, and uh, if we didn't, we'd have six, seven, eight people interview every applicant. And if all eight of us didn't agree that this person should be hired, we didn't hire them. Very meticulous in hiring and may, also making very, very sure that the person we were about to hire was going to fit into our company and our value system. Yeah, and that culture alignment um, is, is a really key um, point, uh, the, the, uh, the, the culture fit uh, and organizational fit. Now, we, I, I will just give the caveat that we have to be careful because sometimes people use the idea of fit as a catch-all kind of an excuse that will allow them to, um, to exclude certain populations uh, in, you know, illegal types of ways, but they, they just frame it up as fit and it's not a culture fit or it's not an organizational fit. Um, so we need to be careful of that. Um, but generally speaking, looking for that alignment uh, is key. And I've done a lot of research in this area myself in terms of person organization fit, person job fit, values congruence, those sorts of things. And when that, that congruence is there, people thrive. And you mentioned it, that it's, it's not only to the benefit of the organization, but it's to the benefit of the individual. So if someone doesn't meld well with their team or with the organization, they don't have that values congruence, they don't have that person organization fit, that person job fit, they're not gonna be as successful as they otherwise could be. They're not gonna be as successful in their career and they're better off being somebody somewhere else, right? They're, they're better off uh, pursuing their career in a different 
organization that better aligns with what they're going for. So we're doing them a favor. We're doing our organization a favor. And ultimately, if we can remember that, that will you know allow us over time to have that better uh, alignment and and have you know a real organization of excellence, as you mentioned. So I want to zoom in on that excellent excellence piece a bit. You, you've already talked about it a little bit. Um, why why did you choose? Why did Sintas choose excellence as that that focus in terms of culture? Because you know some some organizations will focus on you know things like diversity, equity, inclusion. Others will will focus on you know customer centricity uh, and, and customer focus. You know there's a whole range of different types of values that an organization might choose, you know, in terms of trying to, to push forward a, a great company culture. Um, what was it about Sintas that, you know, you landed on excellence as, as that, uh, that kind of driving force behind the culture you wanted to create? Well, I think it was the recognition that in order to be a successful firm over the long term, and in order to be the leader in your field, you have to strive for excellence because you got people like you know, many competitors that are out there trying to uh, copy everything you do, outperform you with a customer, outperform you financially in every other way. And I, I you know, if you were competing against a horrible team every week, uh, I guess you wouldn't have to have excellence to be successful. But in business, it's sort of the last bastion of survival of the fittest. If you don't do the best job for your customer, you don't give your shareholders a good return. If you don't have a, a, a company that's diverse and, and uh, it performs well, uh, you're going to be an average company and also ran company. And we, we made the decision early on that wasn't what we wanted to do. We did not want to be an average company. We did not want to be copying our competitors all the time. We wanted them to be copying us. And the only way you can achieve that is with excellence. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And excellence encompasses all of those other elements too. I, I think, you know, when I think of excellence, I think of, you know, a people-centric organization that focuses on the excellence of their team members and people in the organization, the employees, also focuses on the customer experience, focuses on excellence in all operational areas of the organization, all, all the divisions, all the different uh, logistics and, and those sorts of things just excellence across the board uh, when we have that kind of a mentality that, yes, I'm going to come to work each and every day and try strive for a little bit better, a little bit more excellence in, in the work that I do. I think that's a tremendous motivator to people too, as they see, you know, whether they end up staying at the company long-term or they see it as a launching point, you know, for, you know, to get great experience and then move on to a different organization for the rest of their career. Um, you know, it's, it's a win for the organization. So I love, I love the focus on excellence. And, and I think that speaks very highly to um, the work that you did as a leader and, and your predecessor as well. Um, Bob, I note the time. I'm going to have to let you go here in a few minutes. Uh, before we close, though, I wanted to give you a chance to share with listeners how they can get connected with you, find out more about your, your work currently, your book, those sorts of things, and then give us a final word on the topic for today. Okay. Well, John, uh, uh, I have a website called robertcolehep.com uh, where I have uh, all the podcasts I've done and, and a number of articles that I've written, as well as the ability to buy my book, Build a Better Organization. And uh, 
Uh, it, it, I, my book is available through that website. It's also available on Barnes and Noble and, uh, and Amazon. Uh, and I guess uh, I would say uh, the thing that comes to my mind is, is, is the whole people aspect that you talked about. Um, we, when we, if you think about our principal objective, and I would have this discussion when we would teach the principal objective, there are three constituents. There are our customers, our shareholders, and our employees. And I would always ask the audience this question. If you had to put them in some order, what order would you put them in? And it was sort of a trick question. And I would tell you that most of the time, the response I got was customers first, employees second, shareholders third. And I would ask this question. I would say, now, let me ask you, if you're route force, the service salespeople we had that drove our trucks that interfaced mostly with our customers. I said, if you had unhappy service sales representatives, could you possibly have happy customers? And they all of a sudden said, I guess you could. And I said, well, one isn't any more important than another, but happy employees yield happy customers that yields happy shareholders. The people in your organization, the most important thing, and you heard the term, people are your greatest asset. Too many companies don't really treat them as their greatest asset. And so we, we not only measured customer satisfaction, we did annual employee engagement surveys to know how happy were our people. And when we would do an engagement survey and we'd find that our people weren't quite as happy at a particular location as they should be, guess what? The customers weren't happy, as happy, the returns weren't as good. And so it all starts with your people. Uh, the analogy I used to give is uh, think about a basketball coach. Can a great basketball coach win many games without great players? No way. You got to have great players and a great basketball coach. And so the focus has to be on your people, number one, in my opinion. And then if you have that concept of excellence, you'll produce good returns and you'll have happy shareholders. But it's all about business is all about people. Running a nonprofit, it's all about the people who surround you, the people you bring into your organization, how engaged are they, how motivated are they. And so people, it's all about people. In fact, one of my criticisms of college, I was on the board of a college for many years, is they teach about things. They don't teach about people. How do you call somebody in your office that you're unhappy with, have them chew them out and have them leave saying, I got to do better rather than I hate that SOV? Okay, that's something we ought to learn in college. You don't learn that until you screw it up a few times. And so the whole people aspect of business and of running a nonprofit into an organization should be taught far more in school than it is, in my opinion. Yeah, well said. I completely agree. I am a 100% believer in focusing on the human capital of an organization and, and investing into the people. Bob, it has been a real pleasure. I encourage listeners to reach out, to get connected. Uh, with Bob, check out his book. Uh, and as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership, ordinary everyday actions that produce extraordinary results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years. With increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition, the average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. 
what will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. Check out Human Capital Innovations magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine with the mission to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We publish issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Take a look at the latest issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.